Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. Well, it is great to see everyone here this morning. We are thrilled to have you here at Calvary Chapel. I pray that you have had just a wonderful week. Uh, as we come together this morning to study the Word, to sing praises to our Lord, and to return to our study of Acts chapter 2. So I pray that everyone is blessed here this morning, that you're encouraged in the Word, and that as always we would leave here transformed and changed. We will get through Acts chapter 1 today. Okay, We'll get out of Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts. The book of the early church. The account of how the church was established, the way in which God moved, the way in which Jesus promised the coming of the Spirit. As we've discussed the last few Sundays, the necessity of Jesus and His ascension into heaven such that He could go and prepare a place and they would send the Holy Spirit for our benefit, for our comfort, for our empowerment. It's an account of men and women, who are on fire for our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they turned the world upside down. And by way of review, I'll start today in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. And as you go to that verse, if you would just agree with me in prayer before we go to the Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks for this morning, this morning which you have blessed us with. This day that you have given us, Lord, I pray that each of us here, Lord, could rejoice and be glad in it here today. We'll learn and study here today of that day of Pentecost. And that that day, as we'll read, when Pentecost had fully come, was the completion of a process. It was the completion of a work of God that equipped believers, that equips us with the power to serve you, with the power to minister, with the power to live out the calling that you've placed upon our lives. And Father, I pray there'd be an awareness of that here today, that you would work in our hearts here this morning, that we could receive and hear the word that you have for us, and that as we prepare our hearts for a time of communion, a wonderful celebration of the, of the gift that we've been given, of the sacrifice of your Son, that we might live, that we might be able to lay hold of that same promise of, of having conquered death. We can lay hold of the promise of eternity, or that you'd prepare our hearts for that. that you'd do a work within us here this morning that as we often pray, Lord, that we would leave here transformed, different, closer to you. For the burdens on the hearts of those here this morning, Lord, move, speak, Lord. Transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, 
James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. There was an incredible group of people that were gathered together here in this upper room. And they came together and they were of one accord and they were in prayer. And the fact that they returned in verse 12 to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet was, in fact, a sign of their obedience to what Jesus had asked them to do. They obeyed the commandment of the Lord and they returned. And we know, based off of the Gospel of Luke, that they returned with great joy. And so that's the first thing that I want to remind us of here this morning, is we have to remember what happened at this particular time. Now, no doubt about it, today as Christians, we can look at the account of Jesus, of his resurrection, of his time on earth after that period of 40 days when he appeared to many when he spent time with the disciples. And we can look at that and we can think, oh man, I would have had such joy as well over that entire experience. And we would have, no doubt. But remember, do not forget that the disciples still were wrestling with the idea that Jesus wasn't going to accomplish the work that they expected him to accomplish in the way in which they expected him to accomplish it. Before his ascension, they asked him again, When is the kingdom going to be established? They still had hope of a particular plan. And they still had to say goodbye, even though there was a promise of one who would come to comfort them. They still had to say goodbye to Jesus, to their Savior. And yet they followed his command. They were obedient to what he asked them to do, perhaps more obedient than they had been ever before. And they had joy. Things hadn't worked out the way that they had expected. God had a different plan, but they were adapting. They were obedient to his plan, and they had great joy. And so as we begin our study today, that's the first question I want to pose to you is, do you have such joy in your lives today? Are you joyful today? The Lord maybe has not worked in your life the way that you had thought he would. The plans that you had, that you thought surely were ordained by God, may not be playing out the way that you had expected. Life may have dealt you a a curveball or two. Maybe God has told you, like he told the disciples, to wait. Maybe God has told you to go. And you're not yet ready to listen to that. He's perhaps led you in a different direction than what you had expected. Are you today in joyful obedience? Are you in joyful obedience? Or perhaps are you in what I would call neutral compliance? I'm just going to be right here, and I'm just going to go along with it, because I know that's what I'm supposed to do. Or perhaps even disgruntled disobedience. You You can be here today, and you can be one who's following the Lord like Jonah. You can be like Jonah. In compliance, okay, fine, I'll do this. I'll do what you are asking me to do. But they returned to the upper room with joy. They returned with joy because of the promise that Jesus had made to them. Because of the command that he had given them. Because of what he asked them to do. And I would submit to you, first thing this morning, Christian, that God has a promise for you. It's throughout the Word of God. God has a plan and purpose for your life. That's not just something that 
we put on a poster and, and hang for inspiration, right? No, it's true. By the word of God, we know that God has a plan and purpose for those whom he has created. We have to sometimes realize that purpose. No doubt they missed Jesus. They missed Jesus, but they accepted the plan. And before the Holy Spirit had even arrived, remember that, that the Holy Spirit had not yet arrived in that way. Now Jesus had breathed on them to give them understanding. He had given them the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, that they might understand the Word of God, that their eyes would be fully open to understanding and knowing what it was that He was teaching them. But this promise of the empowering of the Holy Spirit had not yet arrived. They were waiting, and they had joy. And the Word says that they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. We'll read shortly that there was a specific account of the number of people who were present at that time, and it was 100 and 20 people all together in this upper room. A great mixture of people. Those followers that in some cases had rejected Jesus before, they were there. Someone who had denied Jesus before, he was there. Family members of Jesus who did not want to believe that their big brother was in fact God's own son, Savior of the world, they were there. Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, with this group of believers together, it would have been so easy for someone to have caused disruption, for someone to have made accusations with their different backgrounds, their experiences, some their faithfulness to Jesus throughout His ministry, some a lack thereof. How many of you can think of various family events that you prepare yourselves to go into knowing, boy, this could get ugly. It could be just even a small group, and you have very little confidence that everybody can kind of keep it cool for a while because of opinions and experiences and backgrounds. And here you've got such a diverse group of people coming together with so many different experiences. And if you wanted to, somebody absolutely could have said, Peter, because we'll see how Peter rightly lays hold of his leadership role during this time. They could have said, I don't want to follow you. You're the worst one for us to follow. You screw things up all the time. But it says that they were together of one accord. There was an amazing unity amongst these believers in this early church. A type of unity that we need more of today. This is a unity that I would love to see between churches today. Amongst the church as a whole, but also even within individual churches. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not making an ecumenical statement. There are today things that exist that are defining characteristics that if somebody believes something that is contrary to the Word of God, then we have grounds to, to not spend time together, to not worship together, to not just accept and assume or say that, Various roads can lead to salvation and accept different individuals in. There are very much defining doctrinal things. Yet, there are numerous churches today that are teaching the Word of God, that are sound biblically and doctrinally. Yet, we have sort of this mentality today of, well, you are not of us. And, and we need to see the church as a whole coming together more in unity. It's been said before, we don't have to remove the entire fence, but maybe we could have a shorter one such that we could shake hands across it. 
But beyond that, I would say even within the individual churches, within the specific churches, 120 people, that's more than who are gathered here today. And can we today lay claim to and say that we know and experience the unity that existed in this early church? I'm not sure. I can tell you I don't stand here today and say, no, we're way far away from that. That we're just as dysfunctional as can be. No, not at all. I love this church. I love this body of believers. But I can't stand here today either and say, yes, 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt, we are in unity and of one accord such that we see within the early church. It's been said before by a pastor that, quote, we had a problem in our church that needed addressed, so we formed a committee. Now we have two problems. And that speaks to what happens today so often within the church, is as we should be desiring to have great unity and to be of one accord and to be in prayer together, that we end up with disputes over things that don't matter, of issues like who wants to do this and who doesn't want to do this and and everything ranging from studies and events to the way that a sanctuary is set up. There's so many things that the church concerns themselves with today that detracts from what God wants to do through a unified group of believers that is just plain sad. You know, we don't read of of anyone in this account. Uh, Now, granted, church problems will come. It's not that we don't see that within the Bible. That's much of what Paul spent all of his time doing, is writing letters to churches saying, stop doing this, start doing this, don't get caught up in this, don't worry about that, okay? We're humans, so we know these issues come up. But within this particular account, within this group of believers, we we don't read of anyone who's questioning what it is that Peter is teaching, saying he shouldn't be the one teaching and somebody else should be teaching it. Now, I don't say these things, again, to be critical of us this morning, but we must look at the example and we need to learn from it. We need to be inspired by it. It's not enough for Christians to have faith in the Lord. I don't misunderstand this statement. You're going to say, no, we've got to have faith in the Lord. That's the foundational thing. But if we're going to be part of a church, which we're called to be, if we're going to do what God has called us to do, we need to have faith in each other as well. There needs to be a bond of trust, of commitment. These believers were about to be sent out to change the world. Any lack of accord, any division or dispute would have detracted from the work that God desired to do. And far too often today in ministry, too much time is being spent on division amongst believers over preference such that the work of God is diminished. Please be mindful of that today. We all need to be thoughtful about that so that when these things sneak into our hearts and our minds, and we know that we are starting to prefer preference and opinion over truth or the things which don't really matter, that we catch it, that we allow the Holy Spirit to prevent that and not the enemy to get a foothold to cause further division. And so we read that they were in prayer together. And I believe that was a significant contributor to their ability to be of one accord, their commitment to prayer. Our greatest time of being together in in one accord here today, I would venture, would be as we come together and we lay hands on individuals and we pray. And we pray and we're all focused on, on a particular outcome. And we know we want to see God move in a particular way and we can all be in agreement about that. You see, prayer is a powerful tool. And the churches that 
are in continual prayer can experience greater unity than churches who are not. You've heard it said that families or couples or whatever group it is that prays together stays together. It is a bond. And we'll see such evidence of prayer throughout the book of Acts. And it was the difference maker for them. Continually they go to the Lord in prayer. We need to be in prayer. Individually, corporately. I'm personally convicted in this area. As it relates to the things in which we spend our time on in the church, I should be mindful as a pastor to ensure that we have a greater commitment to corporate prayer. Now, it's often a difficult thing. Some people don't like, you know, when you, when you have some type of an event, you know, you can advertise it and you can bring people in and a lot of people show, but typically the prayer meetings don't have a whole lot of people that come out. And that's, that's not a Calvary Chapel thing, that's a church thing. The, the prayer meetings are often the least attended for a variety of different reasons. Perhaps some of the more selfish ones that, you know, that people don't find that they are uh, taught or inspired as much in those particular settings. Or maybe there's just a general sort of fear of those corporate prayer meetings where I don't know how to pray. I'm not a great prayer warrior. I don't want to be put on the spot and have to pray. I don't know what prayer meetings you've been to. I know that early on in my walk, I experienced that same fear, but I've not often attended prayer meetings where I was specifically called on and said, okay, now you pray. Now you, you pray, and there's a move of the Spirit, and those who feel led pray, and the others who are there may not be praying out loud, but you're praying of one accord with the other believers who are together, and you're witnessing and experiencing the Spirit of God move and impress upon the hearts. You know, some of the greatest times at some of the conferences I go to are what you call the afterglow or at the end of the service when people commit to a corporate time of prayer. And it's often within those times that you see the Spirit move in such a way, the, the way in which the Spirit gifts people who some will start to come forward and they'll say, the Lord has just impressed upon my heart that there is someone here with just a ridiculously specific situation. And suddenly that person will stand up and go, that's me. That's me, and I need prayer. And now that can sound scary, perhaps if there's something in your life that you're wrestling with and you're dealing with, and you know, I don't want anybody to know about this. God knows. Spirit knows. And instead, you should be running to those situations where there can be a, a body of believers that are committed to saying, we want to help in this situation. We want the Word of God and the, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of prayer to move that out, to expose that in an individual's life that it can be dealt with. We need to be a house of prayer, committed to a regular time of corporate prayer. Folks, I am talking from a, a person who has dealt with this as the most probably significant struggle in my walk since I've been saved, is just regularly being in prayer, trying to determine, trying to figure out, and, and not trying to uh, align myself with what I see in other people's prayer lives and try and say, well, people say you got to pray this way, or people say you have to pray that way but just being comfortable and just going to the Lord and waiting and resting. Okay, so I'm being transparent with you in that way. That it's, I'm not saying that it's just the easiest thing, but we've got to be committed to prayer. And in verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before 
by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, Jesus had established Peter as the leader. There can be uh, many people, most likely at that time as well as today, to say, Peter starts to assume his role. Here he stands up in the midst of the people and he starts to lead them. And there can be many, ourselves included, who question, Peter? Peter's really the guy? You can even look at what he says here later on in the scripture that he quotes. And Now, it wouldn't be prudent to question what's in the Word of God, right? But you could still look at the scripture you reference and go, huh, I don't know that I would have gone there. I don't know that I would have looked to that particular scripture as evidence for the claim that I was making. You see, there's, there's so many different attacks that can come upon Peter, how disqualified he is to be the leader. And that's exactly what makes him a great leader, is because he is so disqualified that he's qualified. Jesus established Peter as the leader. It said that he would be above his equals. And we see him assuming that role. And we'll see here shortly that as he assumes the role rightly for the first time, we also see him quote Scripture for the first time. It's interesting to think about that, that before we hadn't really seen or heard or read of Peter using Scripture to support his opinions. And that's why we see him fumble so often. Because it's in his flesh, it's in his emotion that that Peter constantly acts out and says the things that cause him to put his foot in his mouth. But here as he starts to assume his true leadership role, he quotes Scripture. May that be the mark of any godly leader when he uses the Word of God as his basis for leadership. We've got to do more of going to the Word of God to support our decisions, to support our actions, especially in leadership for the Word of God to be our guide. And so Peter stands up in the midst of the 120, and they've been praying together, seeking the Lord, and he begins to address the vacancy among them left by Judas' departure. Peter, though, does not go on a lengthy tirade over what uh, Judas did. He doesn't use this as an opportunity to vent about all the things that they're all frustrated about with Judas. But rather, he recognizes the fulfillment of Scripture, the necessity of the events that had unfolded. He says specifically that Scripture must needs fulfilled. No truer statement has been spoken. And if this were only our attitude continually today, that if it's in the Word of God, it needs to be fulfilled. We need to do it. If it's in the Word of God, it's a command. We need to be obedient to it. Now, that's not exactly what Peter was saying there, but rather as he looked at and reflected on what happened with Judas, they could have at this point still been frustrated, angry, disappointed. But no, they understood the necessity of Scripture and prophecy to be fulfilled. The importance of the Word of God being fulfilled, not just prophetically, but practically in the life of every believer. And so he gives a brief description to bring the 120 people's attention. Maybe there was some education that needed to happen at this point, I don't know. But in verse 18 we read, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. So thanks, Peter, for that two-verse portion of Scripture there. You see, Peter was still working on cleaning up his messages a little bit. You know? This was early on in his teaching ministry. It is interesting. We see that. It's, you know, sometimes these things just pop out to us. We're reading, we're reading, yeah, I'm tracking, I'm tracking. And then all of his entrails fell out. 
You know, what? Where did that come from? There's two things we need to see here. First of all, Judas didn't buy the field himself, but rather it was purchased with the money that he had sold Jesus out for, the money that he was given for betraying Jesus. It was a good way, for lack of a better term, to use the funds to to deal with the money in a way that wasn't going to be tainted or disrespectful. Buy a field with it and use it as what is essentially a cemetery, and it will become known as that place forevermore. No one else would have wanted to take the money and, and profit from it. But secondly, this account of Judas's death may seem somewhat of a contradiction depending on what you're reading, uh, where you're reading in the gospel. But there's not a reason to think it a contradiction, but rather a complement to the other account, a further understanding of what happened. And I won't spend uh, a ton of time here, but essentially what we know and believe based off of the uh, different or rather uh, different portions of the accounts of Judas's death is that Judas hung himself. And whether he was already injured or cut beforehand or what happened as the result of a fall, his suicide resulted in him falling from a tree and to his death, getting us the description that we read there in verse 18. It's a terrible end to a life, an absolute terrible end to a life. But Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart. He knew the events that would unfold and the necessity of those events to bring about the fulfillment of Scripture. See, we're confronted on a regular basis, particularly through these first couple of chapters of Acts, with plans that we wouldn't have made, circumstances that we would have tried to avoid. Peter did. He's Peter's swinging his sword. He's cutting an ear off of somebody, trying to prevent what needed to happen from happening. God's ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans. It's about us surrendering to them and understanding them. And, and eventually, in many cases, being able to have the perspective of hindsight, as we say, being 2020, to know and to see and to go, oh, okay, I understand what God was doing there. And here then Peter references Scripture, and, and he mentions Judas not because he wanted to tell everyone around about what happened to Judas, but rather to recognize the fact that we have an opening on the team. There is a spot for a disciple that's necessary for us to have. And he says, for it is written in verse 20, in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. He references Psalms, David, the writer. And here in this context, David knew what it was like to be betrayed by another. When he was a fugitive from Saul, he was betrayed by a man named Doeg in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. And a whole lot of innocent people died. And David may have penned these very words, specifically referencing his betrayer. When David was betrayed, he desired that the betrayer would be desolate, that another would fill his office. It's not hard for us to understand and to see that and make a connection to the son of David, Jesus, whom, whom David often was a picture of, and, and know or, and trust and believe that he would have desired the same thing, that Jesus would desire the same thing, that Jesus had established 12 in the beginning. Now there were 11, and it was important for a 12th to be brought in. And so we see here their desire for God's will to be done, to carry out the work that Jesus had started. And so they'll replace Judas because they believe that that's what Jesus wanted them to do. 
Therefore, verse 21, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so here then you have the criteria. That's what the criteria was for selecting the next disciple, that this would be a man who has accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, so that he must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So this particular account in the Word of God gets a lot of dispute. There's a lot of scrutiny over the disciples must have been in error in selecting who we're going to read, Matthias, as the disciple, because Paul was clearly that other disciple, that apostle. And so people want to look at this and they say, well, they want to say, well, the disciples were in error in doing this. Well, one, we already understand and know that what they were doing here was in an effort to be in the will of God. They felt it necessary to fill this particular vacancy, this opening, if you will. And so already they've got a heart. They've been in prayer okay, for, for almost 10 days at this point. They've been praying of one accord and, and Peter stands up in the midst of them. And so this is a way in which he was led that, that they needed to do this thing. And then as they state the criteria, it's important to note here that Paul would not have fit that criteria. Though Paul absolutely was called to the role that he was in, and though he did see the glorified Jesus Christ, he would not have fit the criteria of being there from the very beginning, from the baptism of John through Jesus' ascension. And so these are the primary things that they're looking for. And based on who they wanted in that role, it, it, as I mentioned, could not have been Paul. Now, we see Paul in 1 Corinthians and Galatians state that he was not to be numbered with the twelve. And some want to say that there may have been some uh, frustration on Paul's part that he wasn't. I don't know if we see that clearly within Scripture. We see again in 1 Corinthians and we see it in Galatians that he was not to be numbered. And, And furthermore, we know that Paul was called to the Gentiles. You see, in this particular case, as they consider the 12 disciples, it was important that those 12 disciples could be a witness of Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul was one who was called to the Gentiles, who took the gospel then beyond to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, I don't know what we'll learn when we get to heaven. Uh, We'll be going through Revelation on Wednesday nights. We know of the 12 stones. Uh, We know of the names of the disciples being established within Revelation as an account within the end times. Whether we'll see Matthias's name, whether we'll see Paul's name, I don't exactly know. That is a question I can't answer to you with a firm 100%. This is what exactly the Bible says. But I don't believe that we have evidence within the Word, and, and specifically here in this account, to suggest that the disciples were in error by selecting Matthias. Some people want to then say, well, we don't ever read anything of Matthias. He must have been a, a dud of a disciple. Well, guess what? After chapter 1, we don't read of any of them other than Peter, uh, John, and Paul in terms of specific accounts and where they were serving and what they were doing. Were they all duds? Oh. There's no reason to try and apply something and make a judgment about something that we don't have as clear as we may need to, to to be able to do that. And so here we have that this basic idea that the disciples were using basic, common sense, 
attempts to really understand the will of God and what he wanted. And they proposed too in verse 23, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, this is the last time that we'll see casting lots as a way of making a decision and understanding the will of God. We don't have any other account of it in the remainder of the, the word of God. And I would say and submit to you that this is not a good way to discern the will of God today, Christian. And so going home and praying and then tossing some dice is not the best way for you to make a decision, okay? And so this, again, draws these disciples under some scrutiny. And they look at this and they say, well, see, they were just foolish. Remember, here they are, 120 people of one accord, desperately trying to understand the will of God. God knew their hearts. They just prayed that. God, you know the hearts of men. They were doing their best with what they had to understand fully the will of God. And one could actually argue that they were in a far better situation than what we are sometimes today because there's no mention here of how they felt about it, how they felt about Matthias. There was no mention of, well, I I really like this person and I don't really like this person. There was no mention of, well, this person's particularly wealthy and might be a great donor to the ministry. There was no favors that, that, that were being discussed. Well, this person did this for me once, and so we'll make them. No. I mean, they were literally doing everything they could to just offer it to the Lord. They established the criteria. They established structure. They were in prayer, and they did what had been used before in casting lots to determine from that point forward, okay, Lord, now it's on you. You tell us. Say what you want about the disciples and their selection of Matthias. We have every reason to believe that this was in accordance with God's will. And so he was numbered then with the other 11. And so they had 12. And now they're able to go out two by two. That was an additional thing that they were looking for, is their ability to be in accountability with one another as they were sent out in ministry. And so we transition into chapter 2. And we'll see that as the Holy Spirit comes, it comes on all of them. It mentions that they all stood up, all of the disciples. And we know that Matthias was there with them, that that he received the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And so now here in chapter 2, we see the day of Pentecost fully come. Fully come. This is so cool for us to make sure we see this and understand this, that Pentecost means 50th. This feast being held 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, according to the calendar of the feast in Leviticus 23. Those feasts, that calendar, those, those feasts in Leviticus 23 also give us an outline of Jesus in his life. Passover pictures his death. First Fruits pictures his resurrection. And 50 days after that, we have the formation of the church, the outpouring of the Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, the Jews during this time would have been celebrating the giving of the law. But here now, with the day of Pentecost fully come, Christians are celebrating the giving of the Holy Spirit. What a contrast. What a contrast. The law that was designed to ultimately, from our perspective, help us to understand our position as a sinner 
the law, knowing that no one could complete it, no one could fulfill it, save one, Jesus Christ, the law that, that served as an instructor to point someone to their need for a Savior, now being contrasted with coming of the Holy Spirit, which empowers a believer to live in, in the way that God has called us to live. Both the Feast of first fruits and Pentecost would also fall on a Sunday. The Feast of Passover falling after the Sabbath on a Sunday. Jesus being resurrected, excuse me, the first fruits, Jesus being then resurrected on a Sunday, and Pentecost fully come on a Sunday. 50 days after that. So if you look at four weeks plus one, you'll have another Sunday. And so as Christians, as we sit here this morning on a Sunday morning, it's not just by chance, as you mostly already recognized, but rather a continual practice of what the early church was doing, these significant events which occurred on a Sunday, the day of our risen Lord's resurrection and the giving of the Spirit. Pentecost was fully come. Not because believers prayed for 10 days for it, They were in obedience, they were praying, they were waiting, but because of the fully finished work of Jesus Christ and the work on the cross. And Pentecost happened once and will be repeated no more. We don't see this example happen again. We don't see this specific event happen again. There's no more need for another day of Pentecost, more so than there is then for another Calvary. We're not looking for another Savior to die upon the cross. That's happened. That's done. It's finished. And so is the day of Pentecost. Now we can pray continually for a fresh filling, a fresh anointing, a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. But this particular event that we'll see here described shortly is not to occur again. And suddenly there came a sound, verse 2, from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. You see, it was a sound. It was a sound as of a rushing mighty wind. We don't know why exactly that occurred, uh, if it was just the, the natural product of how the Holy Spirit moved at that particular time in its arrival, or if it was one to kind of capture their attention as the Holy Spirit came, that they were all you know together and in prayer, that it, it drew their attention uh, visually. We don't know exactly what that was other than we read that there was a sound as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so as I mentioned, we don't see anywhere where this happened again quite like this. There is one time in which we hear of the house shaking, but that's it. And this, then, is the birth, essentially, of the church and the approval of God upon it. So here the Spirit comes, the Spirit that had been at work prior to. It's not that the Spirit was absent in every way, shape, and form. The Spirit had absolutely been at work. But here the Spirit comes, the Spirit that, that is now enduing believers with power. And this was the proper order. Passover, first fruits, and then Pentecost. Jesus' death resurrection, and then his ascension such that the Spirit could come. There's always order, and it got their attention, wouldn't it you? This sound is of a rushing wind and, and this fire, and you can picture fire. I mean, we, we don't know exactly what this looked like, but when you look at a fire and you see the flames, I mean, you could see where it would seem as a, as a tongue uh, as, as the fire and the flame moves. We don't know exactly what this was. Some suggest that it definitely uh, wasn't actual fire, 
right? That was upon their heads. Well, we don't know. We don't know exactly for sure, but we know that there was something that was very powerful, that was supernatural, that was happening here, and, and in some ways it was visible to them. But this feeling, this power came for them to be a witness for effectiveness in ministry. God indwells you with His Spirit when you are saved, as we discussed last week. But then the Spirit can come upon you for power and for effectiveness in ministry. It happened here for the Jews, and then later for the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. And now at this point, they are speaking in tongues of human dialect. We read in verse 5, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. Because everyone, not confused because they couldn't understand, but confused because they heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Very specifically, all these different individuals from different backgrounds and different places who had come together. This was a particularly busy feast, the Pentecost, that drew large groups together. And here they're from all over. And it's clear here that they were speaking in tongues of men, such that those from those very specific areas could understand and hear in their own language. And what's extra special in this situation is because of each of those different languages, there were nuances, there were dialects, there was specifics about each person's language that these people, these these Jews, these Galileans, could, could speak in that way, that they could understand. And the works of God were being praised it ultimately, it's, it's, it is the gospel, it becomes the gospel message, but at this particular point, it wasn't that they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That comes a little bit later, and we won't get there today, where Peter gives his sermon, his message, but right now they're just praising the works of God. Now this is, if you recall, when I first started Acts, I talked about Genesis 11 and the curse of Babylon. And how God came down and confounded them in their language and they spread out, not being able to understand one another because there was evil in their hearts to bring glory to themselves as they built that Tower of Babel. And so they were spread out, not being able to understand one another. And so here we essentially see the reversal of the curse at Babylon. And instead of men being confused and unable to understand one another in their attempts to bring glory to themselves, now these men and women understand and they hear as God brings glory to himself. You see how these things are being completed? How God is bringing his plan and his purpose together? God brings understanding to the languages of men to bring glory to himself. And furthermore, here these many languages being spoken proclaim the truth of the gospel for all. For all. As we know, we'll very quickly see then that the message is taken beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. And we must praise God for that. The tongues spoken here are not those unknown to men requiring an interpretation. This does not give a basis for someone with the gift of tongues to speak in such a way in a large gathering to say, ha, look, see, I have the gift of tongues and I want to proclaim it to everybody. That would be an improper application of Scripture. 
Yes, they were gifted here. Yes, the Holy Spirit gave them power to speak in other men's tongues. But this is not specific to the gift of tongues and how it is to be exercised properly within the life of a believer. Do I believe today that the gifts of the Spirit are relevant for today? Absolutely, I do. Do I believe that people can speak in tongues today? Absolutely, I do. I have no reason to not believe that, but I believe it's to be exercised properly in balance and in an appropriate setting. Some want a glory in tongues and focus on it. Some want to condemn it. I want the gift to be exercised properly. But what we see here was a gift of tongues of men so they could understand and they could hear of the works of God. And so they were all amazed, verse 12, and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And in verse 13, others mocking said, they are full of new wine. You see, there will be those who mock. There will be those who doubt. There will be those who question when you are led of the Spirit whether speaking in tongues or exercising any gift, there will be those who question it and mock it. You need not pay attention to those, but rather seek to use the gift in the way that God has gifted you in its appropriate way. And here they they accuse them of drunkenness. And Peter stands up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's about 9 a.m. These guys aren't drunk. It's early in the morning for one, so you know how dare you of such an accusation. Uh, but furthermore, I, I don't know that I've ever observed drunkenness translate to very articulately and eloquently speaking in another language. Right? If anything, a very slurred language where you just can't understand anything about what a person is saying. And you say, that doesn't make any sense. Here it made all the sense in the world. They weren't drunk. They were empowered with the Spirit. And so it's difficult not to think then of of what uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. See the contrast there? And we'll end here in verse 15 today as we prepare to go to communion. You see, when someone is drunk with wine, they lack self-control. They can't articulate another language in in a way that others would understand, and and furthermore, that glory could be brought to God. But one who is filled with the Spirit, they have self-control. They bring glory to God. See, the Spirit has come. The day of Pentecost has fully come. And Jesus, Jesus died on our behalf, fulfilling Passover, fulfilling firstfruits with His resurrection, and the Spirit has come, fully completing Pentecost. There's there's not much left from a fulfillment perspective for Christians. Trust me, there's a lot there. (laughs) There's a lot that still has to happen. There's a lot of things that we can see within the Word of God as we'll study in Revelation that we'll see unfold. But our perspective, Christian, will be very different. We are awaiting, at this point, a glorious return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who the, the Word says should each and every one of us not perish, before his return, that you know, we'll be translated, caught up in the clouds. But to those who have perished as well, that their bodies would be resurrected and them first will be caught up in the clouds, raptured to meet him. The Spirit has come such that we could have power to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. In the words of Vance Havner, I quote, We are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. 
Do you have the Spirit today? Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.